Welcome to Surviving Society. My name is Dr. Chantal Jessica Lewis and I'm the executive producer of the show. This week we have the second episode of the series titled The Role of Love in Social Justice Work. Ez is in conversation with PhD student Molly Ackhurst. Molly also is from Act Build Change. This conversation is both a tricky, challenging, but liberating listen. The conversation focuses on sexual violence work in social justice spaces. Between Ez and Molly, they talk about how we can move away from the punitive pull of castoral logics when it comes to sexual violence. This is by no means an easy topic to cover. And this is by no means an easy topic to deal with and explore and recover from in social justice spaces. One of the things that I think we do very well at Surviving Society is talk about both the nuances, the pain and the struggle that comes with talking about sexual violence. But what remains clear in this episode is that carceral logics are not aligned with emancipation for all. I really hope you enjoy this episode and do take your time listening to this episode because it can be quite challenging in parts. Welcome to Surviving Society Presents The Role of Love in Social Justice Work. In these episodes, we will explore the role that love plays in social justice spaces. I brought on a handful of amazing guests that spoke to the way that love impacts the work that they do as well as the challenges and benefits that this presents. This series has been executively produced by myself, F. Chiba. This is a trigger warning. This episode, at times, contains conversations and sensitive material that people may find difficult to listen to. Hi everyone, it's me again, Ez, um, and I'm here with my lovely guest, Molly. Um, Molly, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, of course. So I'm Molly, Molly Atkirst, and I'm a social justice facilitator. And I'm also a PhD student at Birkbeck University, uh, Birkbeck College, University of London. Um, so that's that's me. And um, I brought Molly on today because so Molly and I work together at Act Build Change, um, and we have we deliver sessions looking at collective care and wellbeing. Um, and that throughout that process, I feel like our work our way of working together has really centered love and care. Um, and also Molly's great and has done amazing research um, and a lot of like work on the ground, um, looking at difficult topics. Um, and my experience of Molly is that Molly really centers love in their work. Um, so I thought it was really important that we could have this conversation and thank you for coming on and talking to me. Um, yeah. Do you want to maybe start by telling us a little bit about your research? Yeah, but firstly, thank you so much for those very kind and generous words. I do try and center love in my work. So it's nice to, you know, when someone just echoes that they, they feel it too. Mm-hmm. That's really nice to hear. So I guess, yeah, about my, my research, I look at sexual violence and justice um, and the like narratives that exist and the stories that are told about what justice after sexual violence is and what it can be and I kind of came to the research off the back of doing kind of nearly a decade of sexual violence frontline sexual violence work uh, work which I've continued throughout 
the PhD and I'm in my final year at the moment, which is terrifying. <laughs> and kind of through this work, I worked as an outreach worker, which is supporting people who experience additional marginalizations, finding ways to support them to access kind of what we would typically describe as mainstream sexual violence support. I also worked as what kind of people in the in the sector call an ISVA, which stands for Independent Sexual Violence Advocate, which is supporting uh, people who've experienced sexual violence. I worked with women and self-identifying women aged 12 and over who'd experienced rape and childhood sexual abuse and supporting them through the criminal legal system, whatever that might look like for them. So the decision to report, kind of going to that first report right up until kind of court if it ever gets there and as as we know and I'm sure we'll speak about this later so so rarely does that happen kind of been doing that work for for a while then um and had just found so often through doing that work that despite definitely holding an abolitionist politics and being involved in abolitionist organizing with kind of various social justice kind of direct action groups um, in in and around London, that I was still kind of getting pulled into this place of kind of carcerality, and by that I mean like a, a type of politic that supports incarceration and entrapment and confinement. So like when someone that I was supporting would have that guilty verdict or have a charge from the Crown Prosecution Service or or have um, a case kind of go to the Crown Prosecution Service, all of those things being so, so rare, I would kind of celebrate internally. Um, I would support, kind of sometimes celebrate with the person that I was supporting. I would also notice my colleagues who had held similar politics to me doing similar, similar things, like feeling similarly moved. And I found the people that I was supporting who like didn't really want to go through the criminal legal system, didn't really want to report. Also, there was this like punitive pull. In my research, I, I talk about that kind of pull as almost like a sense of stuckness to carcerality, stuckness to the criminal legal system. Effectively, yes, my research looks at sexual violence and justice and what justice can be, but it's also about the stories that we tell um, and the stuckness that exists within those narratives. And so I look at, engage with critical feminist academic scholarship um, and the narratives that exist in, in that kind of body of data alongside um, interviews, that, like narrative interviews that I conducted with uh, 23 frontline sexual violence support workers across the whole of England, Wales and Scotland, and also people who had experiences of homelessness through a service that I had worked with in the past. So yeah, that's a bit about my research. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And it's really interesting that you use that word stuck or stuckness um, because so preparing for this episode, we had a pre-chat and we spoke and that it's interesting because I wanted you to come on and I was really interested in your research and your work and I was like, it was very external and mm-hmm. it actually wasn't until we were in that conversation where I was like, oh my gosh, yes, I've also got a background working with young women who've experienced extreme instances of violence and also my lived experience and so there was like oh my god yeah this does also apply to me what I was taken back to in that conversation was a particular incident um that I would say forced me um forced me to move away from doing that work in the way that I was doing it and I think the prevailing feeling for me was like I just felt stuck I just thought and felt like that how and what um do we do with this so that was there. That was really there for me, basically. And like, it's interesting how even though I had been working and I think the bulk of my work has been with young women. And as we know, most young women have experienced some version of violence um, against them um, in different ways. And so like, yeah, the bulk of my work has been that. 
but I've even been able to kind of intellectualize and move away from the feeling of what it was doing that work and the stuckness of who receives care, who is criminalised, who, and all of the different things that come out of that. Um, so yeah, in that conversation, I left that remembering that feeling. And that was really real for me. Um, that was really, it was a really real thing. That like, working with people, like really trying, really fighting, really seeking to be creative, really seeking to sense her love and care for myself, my colleagues, for the young women I was working with, for the communities that I was working in. But like always ending up with this feeling of like stuckness basically. I think that's so common for and it's something that has has been present across all of the interviews that I conducted with frontline sexual violence workers this sense of what I was hearing was this like deep love for the people that we're working alongside and the pain and anger and sadness and like feelings of injury that that come alongside that love or that come because of the love and I I think a lot about um there's this fantastic book called Trauma Stewardship by someone called Connie Burke and Laura Vandernoot Lipsky and they talk about how um so often in sexual violence or gender-based violence work there is this like I guess vicarious trauma is the more commonly used framing of it burnout is another one um and they talk about how we can explore the ways or you can see the ways that that creates this diminished creativity this loss of capacity to like imagine and do new work and creates like a of kind of fosters a numbness and they look at how that's not something that is just an individualized thing it's something that is their work is very u.s based but how that ripples across the sector and the result of that is a carceral politic and Mm. like a, a politics that is deeply attached to and invested in criminal justice criminal legal system solutions um and all of it comes from this this deep care mm-hmm. for survivors, and it's so I find it so fascinating how that care can mutate into something that is so uncaring and so unloving, um, and it yeah it makes me really really quite sad. But uh, they were at one point in the book they talk about um, this other group called I think they're called like the Northwest Alliance. They cite this one group um, in the U.S. One of the things that they did to navigate through that kind of numbness or even like prevent it um they're called the northwest network of bisexual trans lesbian and gay survivors of abuse is that they created this space for for slowness this space for reflectivity this space for tension and they 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 talked about it in 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 the book around like creating space for things like free writing mm-hmm. which really makes me think of the work that you and I have done with with act build change around kind of carving out time and space where people can go into that place of discomfort rather than sitting in that place of 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 comfort i guess mm-hmm. comfort in pain and it, it's really tricky because it is like being able to hold in both hands the pain of these experiences and at the same time knowing that actually inflicting more pain is not the solution um and even if there is a kind of a temporary gratification that comes from that even if there is a sense of justice my experience is there is not an embodied justice um it doesn't take us there um and that's a difficult thing to say and that's a difficult thing to navigate when when doing that work particularly with people that have experienced violence against them in their bodies and I would take it further as well. I totally agree with what you were saying. I think that 
in, in, in my work, one of the things that I did at the start of all of my interviews was we started with the space to imagine freely what someone would want after sexual violence. And what was really interesting is that in talking about the things that they wanted, often there were these like really beautiful, like utopic things um, in across all of the interviews. Like I remember one of them, the the participant spoke about wanting these like leaves and vines and like a beating heart at the center. And, and the thing that they created is just so like, yeah, again, utopic. And when they were speaking about it, there was the kind of the, the intonation and the flow of speech was so fluid and like unconstrained. And then there was this beat towards the end and there was this kind of, oh, this this adds actually naive. Like this won't give people the things that we need. There's like an interruption into the into the hope. And I think something that I'm working through at the moment is trying to figure through that actually maybe that comes from this kind of like wounded love, this this mm. love that is embedded and imbued in pain and injury that that causes pain and injury. And that maybe that is the thing that is interrupting the moments of, of like that break the carceral frame. I was having a conversation with my first boyfriend um, recently, and they had insightful reflection on our relationship, which happened when we were teenagers, and like, yeah, it's significant in many ways, but also not. Um, but they had this insightful reflection about what they learned about love, what he learned about love um, in his foundational relationships. Um, so how actually for him, he grew up in a single parent home f with an immigrant mum that had to, that felt she needed to be stern, didn't show him love in a way that was soft um, or all of those different things, right? And so the messages that he received from that were that love means that person just doesn't leave like we argue we we can treat each other however we want to treat each other um and that person just doesn't leave um and so in context of like dating and in that world that was kind of his understanding of love was that like i can do what i want um as long as i don't leave um and so and was like I like treat can treat people badly and on the other side of it if they leave that means they didn't love me and so again not to minimize and like minimize we're talking about big, a big topic here i feel like thinking about in that conversation something really shifted for me because there was a perspective in hearing his understanding of his approach to love hearing it from his mouth hearing his the journey that he's gone, gone on within himself to get to a place where it's like oh yeah no that's not what love is um and that's as a 30 plus year old man um coming to a place where it's like oh i'm now starting to think through what is love and what is my, what are my expressions of love etc etc right um the harm that we're talking about that occurred in in that relationship is not any in any way shape or form kind of comparative to to what we're talking about here but in terms of the process that happened for me as someone that is like oh this person hasn't treated me well um and seeing the place that they got to that felt more i i gained more from that than any ideas of like revenge or punitive kind of engagement with with this person um yeah and it just it was it felt really stark to me that actually there's a privilege in being able to access and know love in in a pure form there is a there is a privilege in that and how do we as individuals and as communities acknowledge that without um without what's the word i'm looking for uh excuse him harm so that like, it's not it's not 
giving people an opportunity or an excuse to cause harm, particularly the type of harm that we're talking about. But how do we acknowledge that actually people's experience of love um, when there are different levels of marginalization that are at play, people's experience of love is different. So their ability to show love and be in love is, is different. Mm. When you were speaking, I was thinking about um, <clears throat> this amazing transformative justice practitioner uh, in, I believe they're US based called Kai Cheng Tom, um, who talks about the importance of never excusing people's actions, mm. but finding ways to like understand them. Mm. Uh, and that being an important touchstone for engaging in process of accountability. And I think when I think of complex, messy, painful accountability processes, they they for me feel loving because mm -hmm. of the richness and the the texture in them. And like when I was preparing for today, I went back to, you know, bell hooks as everyone, as you do, as you do <laughs> when you're thinking about love. And for me, those those kind of processes, even though they you know no process around gender based violence will ever lack pain, mm -hmm. but they feel more in keeping with like a bell hooks version of love or approach to love like an ethics of love, a politics of love, than mm. this kind of love that feels like it's like pulling us somewhere more violent, but that that kind of drives us in a particular way that, that maybe there's not as much reflection around what that love is doing. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I think like Bell Hooks would encourage us to be really reflective about love, to, to really sit in what that love is doing and to really ask questions of it. I think that's really important and there's also something about who does that work and process. So for me, there's something about at what point do we introduce conversations about in a survivor's story and how do we make space for the different ways that different people experience abuse and harm and allow people to go on that journey and allow people to lead that journey as well. So not coming in, so not... Also, on the one hand, Jeff not coming in on from a punitive place that we want people's heads, but also on the other side, not coming in from a, oh, we need to come by our, what's the middle ground? Um, and how do we let people decide that for themselves? And just because from an abstract place, I'm able to kind of theoretically engage with ideas that challenge existing models for how we deal with things. Um, how do I not enforce that upon people in their lives that maybe aren't ready to, to start that conversation? And what are the needs? Um, so I think there's that on the one hand. There's also something when I think about like perpetrators um, and even that language that, I, that I'm conflicted about um, because often the communities that I was working in, um, everybody, not everybody, that's a, that's a sweeping statement, I'll take that back, but lots of the which usually young men that were kind of put in the box of perpetrators had also experienced various harms in their lives interpersonally and by the state. So it's thinking about at what point in the process do we introduce people to this conversation? Do we need to introduce people to this conversation? What work needs to be done around it to um, support people um, from where they're at, so meeting people where they're at? I think what you're getting at is like when, when do we basically support a survivor or someone that has experienced horrific harm to get to that place with, of empathy. And I think 
or like even understanding mm. that someone that has hurt them has been hurt and, and like that's what I think I'm hearing from what you were saying when you were talking about the the young black boys that were working and living in the community that you were working in you know the the levels of violence and, and harm and racialized state-based harm that so many of those boys were experiencing alongside like interpersonal harm would have been manifold and like I I was thinking when you were talking of Miriam Carver who reminds us that like harm doesn't come from everywhere but like getting someone who's experienced harm from someone to that place is is so difficult and and it has to be done so delicately and I think um I was in a conversation with um a, a few friends that we then developed into a book chapter um one of them is Avia Saraday and one of them is someone called Melanie Brazel and then there's also a Camila Tomlinson but Melanie and, and Avia both offered these like really beautiful insights around the importance of like being survivor centered and not survivor led mm. and so centering someone and caring for them but also not just doing what they want mm-hmm. and and also kind of the importance of having these different spaces for different things and I think so often we come from this place or operate from this place of there being this scarcity we can't offer more spaces we can only do what we're doing right now when actually someone survivors and people who've experienced harm they need a space to be punitive they need a space to rage and to feel kind of all of the feelings they also deserve a space to be challenged around some of those harmful potentially harmful feelings like I think for me that challenge is 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 a caring loving politics yep. um so like wendy brown talks about how like critique is an act of care critique is care and for me that's what i think about when i think about supporting people through this journey uh after experiencing violence and abuse it doesn't all have to happen at the same time it doesn't have to be a linear thing but people deserve space to do all of those explorations and i think so often for frontline workers especially, people who are currently experiencing just this mass levels of trauma and pain. Um, kind of p- people that I spoke to were speaking about having case loads of 100, upwards of 100, yeah. which is just that's so many people to be supporting. That's just so much pain and trauma to be encountering on a daily basis. I think, you know, I can speak from the eye here. Like, I didn't want to <laughs> offer spaces to kind of be like hey what about the people that have caused the harm because that felt too painful for me and I think that that is the case for a lot of people and it's something that I've noticed in in a lot of the interviews that I did was that yeah just the the the, the levels of pain and, and and harm and anger that people that do this work day in and day out feel sometimes kind of almost like moves people moves those those individuals away from a place of being able to do any of the challenge. And it's interesting because going back to what I was saying about process, that everything you've just said, look, we've got the space in conversation, right? To look at what spaciousness could offer us all. When I think about the anecdote that I gave, that it's insignificant in the context of what we're talking about, but about this ex-boyfriend and their process and their journey, actually there are multiple factors in that person's life that supported them to get to a place where they're able to even begin to think about what love is um, and what um, and harm that they they may have caused others, right? And I think that it needs to be, it's almost outside indoors, 
there needs to be work happening on all fronts in order for this to actually work. So that there is no, like, in terms of, like, young women or women that have experienced harm, doing that work to kind of challenge and critique and push them and support them to think about how a punitive approach might be harmful is invalid if we're not also doing other bits of work um, that support other, that support people that have caused harm um, to look at the harm that they've caused and the implications of that on themselves and, each, and others, et cetera, et cetera, right? So there's something in me that when I, when I have these conversations from a, that I can have these conversations from a theor, theoretical standpoint and I know my stance, um, and then I, I sit with them, what does this mean? Like what do, um, yeah, I guess I'd, I'd be interested, interested to hear what you think about that. I mean, I'm I'm thinking of some of the workshops that we've we've done mm. with participants, where there's just when we try and introduce the spaciousness, there's this resistance as well around like, oh, I don't have the time for that. Mm-hmm. You're in you're in the room with us right now. We've we've created this time for this spaciousness, and there's still this like, no, I I cannot go there. So I don't think it's even. I think there is kind of a there's like an economic element. There's a a, a social, social, cultural, economic element to kind of creating spaciousness for people. And there's also like an inter- interpersonal bit as well around like so many of us don't want to go there and it's really, really hard mm-hmm. to go there. And I think it's just about having <clears throat> having people around us that are able to kind of guide us mm-hmm. and constantly be there, which I think so many of the infrastructures that we have in place in the world that we live in right now, they're not built for that they're not they're built for short-term work or 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 work that is like very boundaried and work that is very contained and and actually the kind of things that we're speaking about right now they're not like that Mm -hmm. they're not contained they're not boundaried like I mean there are boundaries but they're they're like they ripple through so many different parts of our lives and like the example that I gave around um, having these spaces a, a moment ago um, that it was Melanie Brazel who was talking about this and they were speaking about their own process mm-hmm. and being given these spaces by friends. Like that that was their community who was able to offer them that space, who could like, they could call, who knew them, who who could kind of challenge them in different ways that probably like a service could not. And so that's when I think of kind of, I guess, operationalizing this type of more theoretical discussion, I think of upskilling people so that they can do this kind of stuff, even as messy as it should be and can be. Like, effectively, what we're talking about is like a transformative justice practice and how to embed that, embed those skills. And it's hard and it takes ages, but it is very possible. I think it just doesn't feel as like it's not an easy solution, and it also doesn't look like a solution. Mm-hmm. Just giving people tools to resolve things, and also not resolve things. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us in the world, we want, especially when it comes to gender-based violence, we want an easy solution that is boxed off. We want it to just go away and be fixed. And actually, it's never really fixed Mm -hmm. and it's never really gone away. And I think sitting with that is also really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And even like hearing that is really hard Um, because I hear it and I, and I hear it and I think... I'm really connecting in this moment. I'm really connecting to the magnitude of this conversation, like how big this conversation is. I'm really connecting to that. I'm also really connecting to my tendency, I'll speak for myself, to 
disconnect and disassociate from how how complicated um, this conversation is. Um, and I'm someone that's in the work. Um, and I think there's also a piece about like practitioners um, and what our responsibility is to ourselves and to each other um, to fit in that. Um, and I'm speaking again, I'll speak for myself. So to sit in that for myself is it's a big ask um and it's really easy for me to just be like oh no uh, i want to fix or i want to solve or i want to create or i want to theorize around um but actually the work is really done in the sitting in it um as much as it is in all those other areas that i've just described um and i have a re- i have a resistance to it i have a resistance to that um and part of when i'm thinking about this episode when i'm thinking about what this episode what my intentions are and we spoke a little bit about our intentions our shared intentions for having this conversation in this way um is that i want to open up the conversation to that actually how do we as well as like we have to be spoken about survivors yes we've spoken about people that are described as perpetrators but then also for the people holding these spaces working in these environments what what do we need and what is our responsibility and what does love self-love and love loving each other in the context of this work looks like too i think it's a lot of radical honesty alongside a lot of critical like loving critique Um, Like I think of a process that I did, a friend of mine and I did together that took a much longer than we anticipated, supporting someone who'd experienced harm, but also someone who'd who'd enacted harm. And, you know, we started the process in February 2020, which as we all know, was the the worst time (laughs) to be opening and beginning any kind of project. And it just took a really long time. And, And myself and the facilitator, other facilitator we we got pulled into life the life of the those early months of the pandemic which was so chaotic and stressful we had to own that and that felt really uncomfortable and it felt really crap to be like we have we have let you down and we have caused harm in this process and I think that kind of have when I think of the types of things that I would need in doing any type of this kind of work it's it's another person that can that can remind you of the principles of what you're doing because I think you know it's so easy for us to get lost in ourselves and our and our own feelings and you know having another person to almost act as a like reminder reflector like remember this is why we were doing this and I saw this a little bit differently to you and having space uh, spaces of trust I guess which is also really hard they're really difficult to cultivate and they take a lot of like yeah radical radical honesty and time Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that's the other thing like these these types of this type of work just takes such a long time and it always takes like a year longer (laughs) Mm -hmm, (laughs) than mm -hmm. you think it will take and I think asking that of people is also really hard because so often after we've experienced something and I guess also after we've we've done something we just want it we want it over and actually the process of of unpicking and pulling apart and kind of re-stitching actually just takes such a long time yeah it does (laughs) it really does and I'm just trying to think about people that feel that if they don't have that time um and it's because I have a lot of empathy for people that claim to not have that time um but I guess I'm I'm asking and answering the question here um so what I was going to say is what do they think we do have the time it's how we spend the time 
because it doesn't heal. It's not fixed. When there is like someone, even a guilty verdict, which again, I've been in spaces where I've celebrated guilty verdicts, particularly in the context that so little people are ever prosecuted. Um, I've been there, but even that doesn't, that, it doesn't end there. And that isn't, it doesn't give the closure. So I feel like there is, a, there, people feed into this illusion that punitive approaches to this topic give closure and give something and they and I guess on, on the surface level they do but actually that stuff still needs to be worked through um in the mind in the body in communities in families etc etc and that that healing process needs space and time and um, so we it's, it's almost like starting that process earlier um or starting that pro acknowledging that process um that's the that's the thing. That's the thing that's gonna bring a level of healing and closure and empower and support people to move beyond the harm. Um, which is huge. Nothing will ever erase the bad thing that happened. Yeah, exactly. That thing we don't have a time machine. Mm -hmm. We can't go back and get rid of it. It it happened. And I think so many of us just want it gone. And of course, like it was horrible. Um, but we we can't do that. So it's about trying to find ways of 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 like supporting someone and all of the people that are around them because you know gender-based violence ripples through communities it doesn't impact the survivor most of all but it will also impact their families their friends their their like communities it will it will continue to to ripple through and i think that's just a really really painful thing to have to sit with mm -hmm. and then it's where do we place that pain um which, and that, I think that it's important that there's space to place that pain somewhere and to engage with that pain. Um, and like I said earlier, to meet people where they are with that pain and not acknowledge that there are different ways that that sits with people and with communities and allowing people to lead on that. I agree with you and hear you that a survivor-centred approach doesn't always give space for a survivor to lead on every aspect of that and actually I don't think that that I don't think yeah I agree with that um but I think what are the spaces where we are listening and allowing um survivors to lead and to share where they're at about building more spaces more things rather than just sitting with the things that we have mm -hmm. and I think I was learning about um the like movement ecology which is that we have to have kind of at any one time in any given movement we have to have things that are taking down systems that are and that are building alternatives and that are disrupting the systems that we have and I like I was thinking as well of like like deeper ayers like social justice um ecosystem and you know no one thing will be everything mm -hmm. but I think it's about offering more things and realizing that the things that we have currently right now aren't giving people what they need mm -hmm. The services that we have right now aren't giving people what they need and the carceral systems that we have are definitely not giving people what they need and, and that brings me to the work that we do together um and it it brings me to like how do we get in front of the harm how do we do the work around the harm um and how do we begin begin to speak about creating systems that and organizations and relationships that 
value process over outcome um and what what can that do what's the ripple on the fact that that could have um on communities and in supporting people outside of the context of sexual violence um how do we create spaces um where there is spaciousness where there is love where there is care where we do sense a community and collectives um and I think that that feels really important to me and in, even in terms of like our process and how we work together and how and I'm going to say how we've chosen to work together because I don't I also don't want to I I haven't had a working relationship that has been built with the level of intention that I think we've put into um, the work that we do together. Um, I haven't had that prior to this. And I think a lot of that is around having experience, having so many experiences that this is not working. This this is not working. <laughs> Doing it in this way is not working. So that, how can we do things slightly differently? For me anyway, it definitely shines through in how we've chosen to work together, how we've cho- chosen to hold each other, how I felt ho- held by you. Care and love being so central to the work and actually that's the thing. So it's more that we invest in the care and the love of our approach um, and that takes precedent over the content of what we deliver. Um, yeah. I mean, I was thinking one of the reasons that we have been able to build with such intention in the work is I think we were starting from fresh Act will change the organization where we met was relatively like not new, but the work that we were doing was like a new part mm-hmm. of that organization. We'd never met, which is surprising because mm-hmm. there's lots of overlaps. Yep. And I think that allowed us to like build from scratch mm-hmm. based on exactly like you were saying, we know loads of these things, these processes, these systems are not working. How can we like move from a place of intention? And I think some of the things that we did, we kind of spoke very early on about uh, the ways that we communicate. So like the user manual that we did with Act Build Change, right from the beginning about kind of how I operate as a person, when do I work best, when do I work worst? Like, and the thing that I found particularly useful for both of us actually, for me to write it down and to look at yours was like, how do you know when I'm in trouble? Mm. Um, and I remember I went back on those user manuals at one point and I was like, like as if there's, there's, there's something going on here. Like I'm not feeling the way there's a, there's a disjoint. And I looked at the user manual and, and it was like, oh, Ez is having a hard time. <laughs> That's what's going on here. And it allowed me to see something that you didn't need to say. And that was really helpful for me. And I'm sure I hope was helpful for you because mm-hmm. it meant that I didn't then like get really pissed off at you. <laughs> I Because I was like, oh, this means this. And I, I can approach this in a slightly different way. I can approach this with like, with, with an understanding of the disconnect which I think you know that those types of processes when you're able to put them in right from the beginning they can be really helpful and useful in allowing us to like not get stuck in these like repeated cycles that like we talk a lot of in actual change about the drama triangle of the like victim persecutor and rescuer and I don't think I ever really felt that at all in our relationship in our working relationship mm-hmm. because we know about how the other one operates to a certain degree like yep. I obviously don't know everything about you but I know a fair bit about how you operate and how you work um which I think, yeah, allows us to not get pulled into that place of p- punishment and punitivity. When I was, I was also thinking when you were speaking about like how do we put this in other organisations and other groups, and I was thinking like the first thing you have to do is you have to do a lot of that unpicking work. And I think so often I'm thinking of um, a group that I just did a big transformative justice process with, who you are now working with, 
Yeah. Yeah. They know, everyone knows that they did the, pro- uh, the Advocacy Academy, um, who just did this massive process to kind of unpick harm that had happened within the organization. And I think there was this real drive to like move really quickly through through the conflict and get to a place of process and actually you had to sit in the harm you have to like work through it before you can put new processes in because if you don't work through it then it will just continue to happen and that can be so frustrating because mm-hmm. uh, we just want to move through because none mm-hmm. of us want to sit <laughs> in the thing and or things um, but I think when I think about processes, I think about processes that allow us to see one another as much as we can, to be vulnerable to one another and to be honest with one another. And that also gives space for conflict as well. Like I remember a conversation that I had with Steph, who's our wonderful line manager at Act Build Change. Who's also on one of these episodes. Yeah, who's fantastic. And she's just so good at just naming stuff and being like, what's going on? Tell me the thing. And I remember just being like, oh, okay, these are the things. And she's like, okay, cool. And I felt really held and I felt really listened to and I didn't feel judged at all. And it really, it reminds me of a similar relationship that I had with a line manager who's one of my very dear friends um, in sexual violence, in the sexual violence services that I used to work for. And we were friends before she was my line manager as well. And that's always messy and that's always complicated. And we had a lot of tension and we just had to name it. Just had to keep naming it. (laughs) This is really hard. And that allowed us to like move through it. Um, Cause that organization had no processes for that kind of stuff, even though it was a feminist organization. Um, but yeah, I think those are the types of things that I think allow us to get to this more transformative place in the workplace and in the places that we are existing in. Mm. And I, th- I think it's really about intention and process um, because in as much as those those there could be like policies or organizational processes that exist that people don't use agency to step into and i think actually the thing that's really worked about our working relationship um is i i i feel and not just you but everyone on that team i feel that people are actively engaging with those processes so they they don't just exist as again like that it's, it's lived practice basically um and for me that it's lived practice that centers love above everything else um and that's been extremely transformative for me um because yeah there are lots of things and so and in other spaces there's so much shame around like lots of things that and lots of reasons why i might struggle to engage with work um or yeah um but in our working relationship I actually trust and from an embodied place I actually trust that oh this is going on but because of Molly's principles around love and because of how Molly embodies love in our relationship we can work through some of these more difficult and and tricky edges um sorry sharper edges Mm. um and that feels really real to me yeah and I think like in our sessions we always start the kind of when we do a new program we start with um talking about care we talk about like we use the audrey lord quote and then we kind of complexify it and talk about well actually you know like audrey lord tells us about self-care and self-care is fundamental and then we talk about leah lakshmi piepsner samra sinha's work um on disability justice and like cripping cripping care and how 
um they talk about how it's like it's not about self-care it's about collective care and collective care means shifting our organizations to be ones where people feel fine if they get sick and cry and have needs start late because the bus broke down move slower um organizations where there's like food at the meetings that people can work from home and that we actually know that we don't need to apologize for those things and that's something that i think has been embedded in the act build change work is that you know we know that we don't need to say sorry we we do yeah <laughs> but we know that we don't need to because we've been really intentional and have built these like very trusting workplaces where we know that it's okay because also like we also trust that the other person is going to show up when they're able to and i think that our this is this kind of branch of the conversation is reminding me of um Shay and Jamie Starling from Level Up have just done this like fantastic TED talk on kind of feminism and feminist organizations and Level Up is another fantastic example um, which and they talk about their processes and policies and which are very similar to what we're talking about in in their TED talk about how actually like they trust that when that person is able to show up they will but actually if we just keep forcing people to show up in ways that they're not able to they're just going to burn out and they're probably just going to leave which is obviously not what we want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like accountability processes embedded within that mm-hmm. model. So it's not just like, oh, do what you want. It's kind of like, and how are we accountable to that? And what does that, and, and I really feel that. So I really feel so in sticky periods. And yeah, in, if there have been sticky periods, I really feel that, actually, or I really trust that actually there are processes in place here that support us to be accountable to each other um so it's not it's not just on a whim it's not just kind of like we do as we wish but it's more like and and if things aren't going the way that we would want them to go um we're able to check in as well and be like right this is what's going on for me um and i think that's really important i think that that that's the loving piece as well so it's not just there's, there's spaciousness with boundaries um and those boundaries feel as loving as spaciousness basically they really echo like relationships loving relationships that i have with friends and also like the loving relationship that i have with my partner around the like the care the affection the recognition the respect the commitment the trust and the honesty and like those are the things that bell hooks talks about when she talks about like this political love that that we can embody um it's just yeah it's a really beautiful thing when those loving relationships show up in your workplaces as well Mm. Yeah, giving space to like humanness, <laughs> like not we're not robots, and yeah, just giving space to us for us to be human, um, and to make mistakes, um, but equally to hold each other through that and work through that. Um, yeah, okay. Before we end, Molly, um, I'm asking guests, um, the question: What is the role of love in social justice work? Big question, and I did know that you were going to ask me this question, so I thought about it in advance. Um, I've been thinking about it a lot, actually, ever since you first told me, which was weeks ago now. And I've been really mulling it over because I think so often in my work at the moment, what I'm work, what I'm like exploring and working through is, is the way that that like, that love when it's like embedded with pain and sadness and injury, yeah, like that, like we were speaking about earlier, how that like can mutate and how how that love can move us in particular ways and the things that we sometimes do in the name of love can be really violent and really harmful. And I like engage a lot with like Sarah Ahmed's work around that. And I've been really like, I felt this like real pull in myself being like, okay, well then what role does love have? <laughs> um, and actually like, I think 
I think that the types of love that I think about, again, like engaging with kind of Ahmed stuff is that maybe like we can see love as this like solidarity work, I guess, that that to me, like love is kind of sitting in the discomfort, love is sitting in the pain, but also like knowing that there is that that pain isn't necessarily our pain and that it is like being open to challenge um and i think that's the kind of love that has a place in social justice work in facilitating us to get to a place of 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 tension sometimes and a, and also know that that tension is okay mm. that's really beautiful thank you so much for coming and talking to me money thanks for having me as Thank you for listening to Surviving Society. To support our work, you can rate, review and subscribe to host or produce a series of Surviving Society. Get in touch with us via Twitter or Instagram.